0: both from an educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Today's episode is with David Kitchens of Cooper Carey Architects. He's my first architect uh, on the podcast, so I thought we'd get a good perspective of design that contrasts a little bit from business and development in the past. David, of course, has worked with many of my prior guests, as well as other major developers in the region. David came here in 1987 and opened the Cooper Carey office, and since then has been involved in many major projects around the region, including uh, Bethesda Row, 800 and 900 North Glebe in Arlington, Uh, the Ballston Mall renovation recently, and currently working on the Avicent project for Stonebridge, Keras, and Bethesda as well. David is a, a pioneer in the new urbanism architecture, which he talks about, and also has some significant and interesting ideas about design, which we get into in a little discussion of an article that will be attached in the show notes called Taste for Makers, written by Paul Graham. That gets into several principles of design regarding taste, which was very a very interesting part of our discussion. And I think you'd all enjoy reading that, that article that I'm attaching as well. It gives an interesting perspective about looking at buildings and perspective and design, which he discusses in some detail. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this uh, wide-ranging discussion with David Kitchens. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. thanks, John. I really appreciate it. I am humbled
1: by the invite, especially after listening to a few of the people that uh, you've provided and other ones that I've listened to. I am joining an elite elite crew of people that I feel like have been great influencers. I am truly humbled and hope I can contribute to what uh, what they have provided, uh, not only in Washington,
0: D.C., but in some cases throughout the country. Well, David, you're the first architect I've uh, entertained for this podcast. So, And uh, I have a lot of respect for you, and I'm really eager to learn more about uh, your background and, and your philosophy about architecture and about real estate. So let's start with uh, what you're doing today at Cooper Carey, your your firm what your role is and your position, and what your day-to-day activities are today.
1: Great. Well, I, I guess you could consider me an old school guy. I uh, have uh, been with Cooper Carey almost my entire professional life. I graduated from Georgia Tech in 1977 and did go to work for a competitor firm in Atlanta, Thompson Venture Let Steinbeck at that point in time, then had a chance to do a couple of things on my own. But a lot of my colleagues at Georgia Tech had gone to Cooper Carey as they had gone through a major transition in the early 80s. And I joined Cooper Carey in 1984 and have been there ever since. The majority of that time in uh, helping to open the Washington, D.C. office of Cooper Carey and have been in D.C. since I would say, full-time since uh, about 1987 and uh, have enjoyed an incredible uh, career, almost having my own firm in Washington, D.C. and helping Cooper Carry grow to that area. So, you know, that's really the, you know, the length of my career at Cooper Carry. You ask me what I'm doing today, I feel like that the last uh, eight years, I have been hiring my kids <laughs> <laughs> uh, because all, all of these uh, young people that are coming out today are about the same age as my kids. So I'm I'm almost the the office father figure, but really see myself as a coach. Uh, and I think as I look at my latter years at Cooper Carey and as we transition to younger leadership, which is what we're actively doing these days, is that I want to be around to to really be that person that advises uh, we are creating some positions that are that are that we call ourselves uh, senior advisors where we really are turning the reins over to talented people in our individual offices as well as the firm as a whole hopefully we won 't meddle as that we will we will certainly be advisors for as long as they want us to be but we are really moving into those kinds of Of uh, advisors, cheerleaders, motivators, helping hands, uh, kind of asking the question, what can I do for you and how can I help?
0: Let's uh, go back to your origins, David. I'm very curious about uh, where you grew up and what your youth and influences were and also your parents and what guided you towards where you are now a little bit. So tell me about that.
1: I lived the Andy Griffin life, uh, (laughs) although I lived it in Atlanta. I was born and raised in Atlanta in uh, 1953. Born in 1953. Spent all of my childhood, youth, and even college in Atlanta, Georgia. Never left the foal. I had a great immediate family. I had one sibling uh, sister who still lives in Atlanta, and my mom and dad uh, grew up in Atlanta. My dad was a his father was a dairy was a dairy farmer uh, huh. right four miles from downtown Atlanta, East wow. Lake dairy and I still have glass bottles and uh, <laughs> cardboard bottle caps from that dairy and uh, in our mountain house in Helen, Georgia, we have a lot of those artifacts that came out of my grandfather's barn. I never met my grandfather because he passed away before I was born, but I lived. Right next door, my dad built a house for our family bef- just before I was born. And so I could go spend time with my grandfather right right through the woods and could see my grandfather's barn and and all that kind of stuff right there. Uh, so I saw a lot of his legacy, even though I never met him. I often was kind of amused by the fact that, you know, the little kids song that you sang uh over the river and through the woods Uh to grandmother's house I go. Well, Mm -hmm. literally from my, from our house to my grandmother's house, I was over the creek and through the woods to my (laughs) grandmother's (laughs) house. I go, Mm -hmm. but I didn't realize at the time how, how much of a connection I would realize later in life, especially in architecture school that I had in seeing a city grow and get to see how it grows. Uh, literally, Anybody who knows Atlanta, and I tell them that I grew up at the end of the number two uh, golf, uh, at, the, at the, excuse me, at the, the ninth, at the end of the ninth hole of the number two golf course at East Lake Country Club, uh-huh. uh, everybody immediately understands, especially if you play golf uh, of what that legacy really is. And, you know, Tom Cousins bought that property and took it over, you know, several years ago now, and re reinstituted East Lake Country Club, but East Lake Country Club became Atlanta Country Club, and was heavily influenced uh, in the legends of golf from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can remember the 1968 golf tournament that was the U.S. Open,
0: yeah, yeah in
1: uh, in Atlanta, and in getting to see some golfers practice on the number two, number two course while they all played really on the number one course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of that legacy is there. My parents were with my sister and I in everything that we did through elementary school, through high school. Uh, the, the thing I remember about my mom in elementary school was, is that back then we bought stamps on every Tuesday, and we filled little stamp books up, and we were able to turn those into bonds and stuff like that. And my mom was the stamp lady for the school. And so she was there selling stamps every Tuesday, and we would go and purchase that. And uh, from early age, I was very interested in music. I played the drums, and, and my parents did their best to, to do my two passions at that point in time were, uh, were playing the drums and and uh, swimming. And uh, so that that followed me all the way through high school. And I had some great memories of being in a very incredibly traveling elementary school band that we went to Chicago and New Orleans for clinics and conventions and played in a lot of great things and that entrance and legacy. I told everybody I was a percussionist because a drummer is simply someone who pounds a drum. A percussionist really knows how to play music, including the xylophone and the tympanies and and those kind of things. And so that was very influential
0: in my career and singing and all that. I met my wife through chorus. Can I ask you, did your feelings of rhythm help you in your career? I mean, obviously drumming and percussion is a rhythmic exercise, having a a certain beat to it. Was that something that kind of Mm -hmm. gave you a little bit of inspiration for, for what you ended up doing in architecture out of curiosity?
1: I think it did. I think you're right. I think that it is uh t- for me architecture is about a rhythm and a vibe that, mm-hmm. that that really that really allows you to identify things. But I will tell you the thing that influenced me my, the most uh, in in being becoming interested in architecture and influencing me and in, in the path that I took was that my dad was in the, the Navy. He was the youngest of uh, three siblings and was the youngest by far of three siblings. His uh, sister and brother were much older than he was by about 12 years. And uh, so he was the baby in the crew. And he got in on the end of World War II and was in the Naval, uh, the Naval Medical Corps, not because he had training in it, but because that's kind of what he wanted to do when he got out. And so he was stationed in, in Seattle, and that was his really Navy career. He never really went anywhere from there, but was basically there, you know, treating sailors who were coming in with broken bones and whatever it might be, and, and that's what he did. He got out of the Navy and went to Emory University, and his goal was, was to end up in dental school, and everybody must have been wanting to get into dental school, so, uh, but, so he, he wasn't successful in doing that. So he graduated the bachelor of science degree and imme- immediately applied his trade in, with his bachelor of science degree at Sears and Roebuck Company on Ponce Leon in the appliance department. Really, <laughs> And so he spent a few years there and uh, then went to work as a salesman for uh, Williams Brothers Lumber Company in Atlanta, who was, was a prolific family that was supplying building materials for all the single family uh, builders mm-hmm. in Atlanta. My dad went on from there and became one of those builders who basically I always said was, uh, he was one of those guys, uh, 12 guys in Atlanta who ran around in pickup trucks, building all the houses in Dunwoody and all that. And were selling all the houses to the people in the mid in the late, late 60s mid-60s and early 70s that were moving out of New York with IBM, AT&T, and moving to Atlanta as Atlanta began to expand as a, as a regional business hub. Uh, a lot of banking industry and those kind of things were sure. actually coming to Atlanta at that point. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, I was a, a, in high school and uh, going into about the 10th grade. and uh, Dad and I would grab house plans that he would get we would sit down and we would we would figure out how to um, how to make the houses better you know they were basically ramblers two stories sure. you know split levels and those kind of things all development back then was basically people who had the in, intuition of understanding where a great piece of property was and and it was a very much a entrepreneurial kind of a business nobody right. had any MBAs in fact a lot of those guys who were builders and developers just graduated from high school and just mm-hmm. did what they wanted to do. During that period of time, you had people like Tom Cousins and the Carters in, in actually mm-hmm. in the home building industries that eventually went on into the commercial development. But Dad stayed in the building business in the residential business, and we would take these plans. And uh, back then, the developers were fairly small that developed residential neighborhoods. They may have had you know 150 lots in a neighborhood or. 200 lots in the neighborhood, but it never got much bigger than that. And they were all, and all the builders were required to take A lots, B lots, C lots, and D lots. <laughs> and usually you only had to take maybe one D lot, maybe two D lots. And I told dad I all the time, I says, Dad, I says, take some more D lots because we can sit down and we can make these things unique. And they, they become the best houses in the neighborhood because they're so unique. And sure enough, we did some of that. And that Intrigued me, and I, at first I thought, well, maybe I just want to do what Dad does. And I said, but you know what? I really do like designing this stuff. So in the tenth grade, I took a, a draft. I, I was already taking art, and and I took a drafting course in the tenth grade. And I said, you know, I think I want to be an architect. And so I pretty much from then on said, okay, that's what I want to do. I worked summers with Dad, and I knew how I learned how to put houses together, and it just it just intrigued me to. To look at at that point in time, how you know homes were built, how neighborhoods were established, and of course, Atlanta was a was a really a, a, a booming uh, oh, yeah. community at that point. A lot of expansion, you know, close-in farms were being turned into commercial developments and residential neighborhoods, and we mm-hmm. were all in the automobile environment at that point. So I was very influenced mm-hmm. by that uh, going into Georgia Tech, but I really had a passion to see how uh, buildings were designed and to learn how buildings were designed. And I would say that the six years that I spent both in undergrad and grad school at Georgia Tech really shaped my career substantially. I really do credit the program at Georgia Tech, which at that point in time was purely architecturally centric. In other words, when you went to architecture school there, you went to architecture school. And uh, you learned it from the beginning to the end. So, what I did was, is I went four years for undergrad, got out there, and could have gone other places to grad school, but uh, I really wanted to, I felt like I had learned how to put buildings together and design buildings, but I didn't know how they fit into the environment. Mm -hmm. And I had a professor at Georgia Tech, Pat Connell, who uh, we had worked with in undergraduate school in Saving the Fox in Midtown Atlanta. And to this day, I have a, mm-hmm. a chair with my name on it in the Fox Theater because I, I spent hours uh, painting the Egyptian columns in the Egyptian <laughs> ballroom in Atlanta. But Pat <laughs> Connell instilled in a lot of us the importance of preserving environments with anchor institutions that are in these environments and, the, and neighborhoods and all that. And if you understand Where the Fox Theater was in the city of Atlanta, which is today called Midtown, and the institution that it was, you can begin to see how the Midtown Atlanta, which includes Piedmont Park, which is part Mm -hmm. of the Cotton States Expedition and all that stuff in the early 1900s, that area is probably the most successful area in Atlanta with the Piedmont Park there. And the second most one today, which is emerging is the Grant Park area, which is a hundred acre park in Southeast Atlanta, which we own a, Judy and I own a house there and are renovating it now. And hopefully we'll make that our home in the future full time. But I, I really think that Pat Cannell was one of the second people that influenced where my path in architecture was and truly coming out of grad school with an architectural degree with a master's in architecture and urban design. I think really influenced me in the path that I took my architectural practice, which has been mixed use,
0: integrated in,
1: in urban environments. That really is kind of where my path has gone.
0: So, so you, clear, at Cooper yeah, Gary. you clearly have a passion for Atlanta, Georgia, and obviously grew up. Your roots are there. Your entire youth, your entire college career, everything was right there in Atlanta. So, you really didn't have the, the bug to, gee, I want to go see somewhere else and explore a little bit, which is um, interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. I, I did spend uh, six months at the Echo Ec- Ec- Day Arts. Uh, Georgia Tech had a, a six-month and a one-year study program there, and I went over and spent six months there. So I got to see the European influence, and that was part of my urban design influence, I mm-hmm. think. Um, sure. But you're right. I graduated from Georgia Tech. And Judy, my wife, is um, five, years, five years younger than I am. We met in church, in the choir. She was a good friend of my sister's, and, and she's a nurse. So I graduated with my master's degree from Tech in 1977, and she had a year and a half of nursing school left. And we lived in Peachtree Hills in Atlanta in an apartment, $200 a month. I went to work for tv for $9,800 a
0: year and worked my butt off. Were they a, a pretty predominant? But yes, really
1: had uh, big no, firm.
0: Were they a big firm they, in Atlanta were, at the time?
1: They they were one of the larger firms in Atlanta. They were they were probably about ten years old at that point. Very, Tom Vincullette was the designer. Ray Steinbeck was the technical person, and Bill Thompson was the manager. It was one of those firms on a pretty peg stool. We were going place. It was going places. I learned a lot there and it enabled me to practice my mixed-use architecture because we were finishing up the Omni International Hotel for two Cousins, or Omni International Center, which is now CNN Center. And it was one of the first, I would call, integrated mixed-use. It had retail, it had office, and it had hospitality in it. And it was right next door to the downtown basketball arena, which was the Omni. and And so I got to work on mixed-use coming right out of college. And that really was my passion, and I felt like that. In the downtown Atlanta environment, that was kind of where everything was going to go. But, but the other, si- other side of Atlanta was is everything was growing out because we had the perimeter. We had all the malls all the way around the perimeter. So Atlanta was a city early on that had two faces. And from a design perspective, in my mind, they chose the wrong direction. They chose to go out instead of instead of deal with their downtown at that point in time. That was, was that your that perspective? Was the, then? Like I did, said,
0: was that your perspective at that time,
1: or did did that evolve? I was bothered by it. Yes, I was bothered by uh, even at that point the fact that we had all of these satellite elements growing outside of the downtown core. Uh, maybe I didn't realize the ramifications that early, but but I was always a kind of a downtown person. I wanted to see the downtown core evolve and to, and to grow. And, and I, I did think that, that we were struggling with, with, a, with a dual identity at that point, Atlanta was. My opportunities and practice afforded me to kind of realize that my intuitions were correct. Interesting. So you were at TVNS for how long then uh, three years I was there until I was became registered I would have been there forever but always been a strong, strong person of faith and I have my uh, attitudes of, of service and servant leadership both spiritually as well as socially have always been pretty strong and so um, grew up up in the church, I would say our family took us to church every time there was a possibility to attend attend church and, and as I have grown in my um, thought about a community building in those cases our culture is in, in many cases has lost the opportunities for community and and I tell everybody is that really I had always found my community and my faith community and had found people to to build long-term and sustaining relationships in that manner. And so faith was very important to me in my early professional career as well. And lo and behold, I had an opportunity. Uh, We attended First Baptist Church downtown in Atlanta, which was uh, Charles Stanley was a noted pastor in the Southern Baptist environment, had a very large church in downtown Atlanta. And I got an offer to come and plan their urban expansion in Atlanta. Hmm. And we went all the way through, and it's very interesting to think about that a thing that would influence you to continue to do mixed-use development in that scenario. First Baptist Atlanta was very much a a biblically spiritual-led church, but it was also a very social outreaching church. And so they had lots of different ministries, uh, and they had owned a large swath of property for a long period of time around 5th Street and Georgia Tech and all that stuff. And they used that to begin various ministries from that standpoint. So I got to design not only some religious facilities, which ultimately was sold to AT&T, and they actually moved out to the perimeter, which was unfortunate, I didn't like that one bit. But to make a long story short, I actually left TVNS and to go and start my own little architectural firm that was connected to the hip with the First Baptist Church of Atlanta and did some things based on the connections that my dad had with small developers in Atlanta for about three years. The main thing I did at that point was, was to look at how to connect an institution in a downtown Atlanta, both to the MARTA system as well as to the community and to a higher university Because they were very influential over at Georgia Tech with their ministries and their outreach there. And so I got to do both an urban design plan. And by the way, First Baptist Church was only like three, it was actually probably two blocks away from the Fox Theater. So I got to do my own urban design basically in in about 1980 of Midtown Atlanta and saw that connection to that whole community in relationship to that and used that from a professional development standpoint, to really understand the how both spiritual and social and institution and basically private sector development can integrate into a community and really, really drive a stake in the ground from that perspective, bringing all aspects of life together for that.
0: Wow, that's really unique in a lot of ways. I don't know if I've ever heard anything quite like that, although... The religious tradition obviously goes back thousands of years. When you think about great architecture, much of it is religious-based, particularly cathedrals and things that are, yeah. I mean, the largest structures in history usually had some some spiritual or religious uh, foundation to it, it seems like.
1: Yeah, and, this, and I think that if anybody who goes over to, to Europe to study architecture, you can't stay away from the great cathedrals. <laughs> of course. Uh, because it was. You, you look at the Renaissance periods and all those kind of things. Uh, it really is all about that. And when you consider, you know, Michelangelo and, and right. all the other Leonardo da Vinci that came out, of they were influenced by all of that but
0: stuff. But even pre-Christian that. times, when you go back into Rome and, and mm. Greece, and these were all to, to devoted to the gods. And then you go to Egypt and you see, the faint great pyramids were yes. all uh, dedicated to the religious beliefs of the of the peoples at the time, and then you even go to South America and see some of the, the temples mm-hmm. there. The Incans mm-hmm. and the and the Aztecs and, and all have religious <laughs> fundamental yeah. backgrounds. So, yeah. to me, the, the almost the origins of architecture some, come from religion, which is interesting to some extent. So, absolutely, absolutely. So you went. You were in your firm for three years, and it sounded like you had a good foundation to build a firm there. So, why did you decide to go to Cooper Carey? And what what, what made that happen? Because I hated the business side of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I got tired of chasing after clients for bills, and and um, <laughs> uh, that just wasn't my passion. I enjoyed the business side of it and I and I had some intuitive thoughts related to that, but I hated doing it. I would rather be on the boards practicing architecture than going out and, you know, collecting bills and all that. And we, we were, I had one partner, I'll just tell this really quickly because his last name was Hall. Of course, my name was Kitchens. And so our architectural practice was Kitchens and Hall. And I don't <laughs> think that was necessarily the best name to have, but we, we had some good laughs about it. But anyway... I just reached the point where our work at, at First Baptist Church of Atlanta was done, and it was left to kind of just do what it needed to do. And we, so we were at a point where, okay, where do we go from here? And my partner wanted to continue to do primarily religious architecture, and I wanted to really branch out and, and kind of do it all. And so a lot of my colleagues, including Kevin Cantley, who even to this day is our president and CEO at Cooper Carey. He and I were classmates at Georgia Tech. Mm-hmm. And he was number two, number one, and I was number two. Wow. <laughs> and um, so I, I reached the decision point and Cooper Carey had just gone through a major transition, like all architects architectural firms do. Uh, Walter Carey and Jerry Cooper had started that the firm in 1960. And like a lot of other firms, they reach a point in their growth process where you either promote people or you make them all mad and they take clients away. And Jerry and Walter experienced that.
0: Was it founded in Atlanta? It started in
1: Atlanta. Yeah, Yeah, uh it was. I'll tell you about that history in a little bit as we kind of get more, maybe more into our firm's philosophy and how that rubs off as my philosophy as well. But I think that Kevin and I had talked a fair amount and Although I'd lost connections because he had gone his way and I'd gone my way after we graduated. But I, I gave Cooper Carey a call and said, You know, I really want to get back to back to my uh, larger practice so I can do mixed use. And uh, they were getting into that, they were thinking about that. And so I went and interviewed, and they said, I think we'll take you. Uh, really joined Cooper Carey in 1984. We had our first child in 1984, uh, Benjamin, and the first of four. We had, had him as our first, and then we had three girls following that. So I joined Cooper Carey and was, while they were doing multiple use, primarily we were a suburban office firm, but we're doing work for some very incredible development institutions, including, you know, IBM. Real estate development group, uh, Prudential's Interstate, uh, you know, real estate development group, and they were building buildings for themselves, mm-hmm. and then they wanted to be near hotels because they were all their employees were traveling, and then as they were traveling, they needed a place to eat and have their daily needs met, so retail was nearby, and so we started doing what we what we called at that point in time suburban mixed use development. So we were doing work for apprentice properties and. Carter and Associates, both regionally and somewhat nationally. And then we were starting to do work for Simon and Tobman and others from a retail standpoint. And then we were hooking up with Marriott and others for uh, hotels. And we were also doing work for Jim Rouse. And uh, I got connected with Jim Rouse and we were doing stuff in Columbia for them and up in Baltimore for them. And then for Prentice, we were doing things like Fairview Park, did two buildings at, in Fairview Park out in Northern Virginia. And we were doing stuff in Dallas for Prentice. And so we were traveling nationally doing that. And so my very quickly, I became the connection between Cooper Carey, Atlanta, and, uh, and Washington, D.C. And in about 85, 86, both, well, several, including Prentice and Rouse, and Prudential and others asked, told us if we opened an office in Washington D.C. that we'd give, they'd give us more work there. And of course, that was about the time that was the you know the Reagan era, and there were a lot of developers in Washington D.C. And so we uh, planned some strategy, and uh, I was invited to go to Washington D.C. And I guess if you really look at it from that perspective, it seems like from a professional standpoint, well, that was that's a great opportunity. That's the right thing to do, but. I had grown up in Atlanta had never, never had any intentions of moving to Atlanta. And, you know, there are many people who, faith, who have a pretty strong faith at times say that there are times in their lives where God aud- audibly speaks to them. And uh, I got to tell you, the interesting thing was, is that I was going back and forth to Washington, D.C. about every two weeks. And I would fly into Reagan National and I would rent a car. And I would head out from uh, Reagan National up to GW Parkway and around the Beltway up to Columbia, Maryland. And then at the end of the week, I would come back to Northern Virginia and meet with Prentice Properties out at Tyson's Corner. And at that point in time, it was still a bunch of office buildings and a bunch of surface parking lots. And they were doing Fairview Park. And I would go I would go land at Reagan early in the morning to rent the car and I'd listen be listening to the radio or whatever I was listening to on the way up to Columbia, Maryland. And I remember it was late one fall in 85, 86, I think it was 86, I was uh, getting out the GW Parkway and getting on 495 and I was listening to the radio. It may have even been a Christian radio station at that point. And I was crossing the American Legion Bridge and uh, I was just thinking about my day and where I was going, and uh, it was just like God audibly told me, He says, Someday this may be your home. <laughs>
0: and I said, Really?
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And within a week after that, Jerry Cooper called me in his office and said, David, we'd really like for you to move to Washington, D.C. Wow. So That's interesting. Jerry? And Jerry, is a, Jerry Cooper is a, a man of Jewish, Jewish faith. And I said, Well, Jerry, I kind of feel like Abraham and your God talking to Abraham and I was supposed to move to Washington DC. <laughs> so we laughed and I said, you know, I'll have to think about this, but I got to tell you, it was hard for me to to not take what I just told you at heart and really think hard about it. So I told, came home and told Judy and we had built our house in Atlanta over in the North Lake area of Atlanta. And uh, it was like, I'd used all my dad's, uh, a building uh, subcontractors and all that to build it. And we were set for life here. And I said, man, we're going to give up this and go to Washington, D.C. And so there were lots of confirmations, but, uh, but really did. I went to work for Cooper Carey. They were emerging and doing almost everything that I felt like was the right path in architecture. And uh, and the opportunity to go to D.C. was was just something that professionally and from uh what we felt like uh, were confirmations that we just, that was the right thing for us to do. And uh, we've we were we've been in Washington, D.C. ever since. And so the, the whole story kind of comes back to say is that if you hit the highlights of it, we went through that first recession in Washington, D.C. We were at about 20 people in the Washington, D.C. office at that point to really really expand we had a couple of projects which I can talk about that influenced me from a design perspective in a few moments but we were ready to really spring and all of a sudden the 89 90 recession hit and we went from about 25 people down to two Wow and you talking about soul-searching that was a soul-searching time I, I even thought about what do I do do I it, but perseverance was was the name of the game. Keep on swinging was the name of the game. Uh, We will survive this. And in that scenario, Cooper Carey made made the confirmation confirming commitment that we were going to be a mixed use firm. We were going to develop experts in each one of those practice groups of retail, office, hospitality, and residential. And we were going to expand into the public sector and and look at higher education, K through twelve. We interestingly enough were still committed to be developer architects, as Jerry and Walter had established back in the early 60s. And so we never really decided at that point at least, we have since then to be a GSA public sector architectural firm. But even today I wouldn't define us as that. But it took us a long time, uh, at least in the uh, D.C. office, to uh, recuperate from that downturn of 1989-90. But it taught taught us to grow, and that office had an incredible mixed-use opportunity to basically design Meisner Park in Boca Raton, Florida, which that development in combination with Reston Town Center became the prime examples of a future mixed-use architecture. And I would even say that along with the the Congress of New Urbanism, which met in the city of Alexandria in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, and signed that charter for New Urbanism, uh, influenced my architectural profession from then on, along with ULI, which had Bill Hudnett with his uh, book, which I have still sitting here in my home office today. Uh, halfway to everywhere. And I read Bill's book four or five times to really deal with the, the ideas and the thoughts of learning how to rebuild the urban cores of our cities and the inner ring neighborhoods and then mm-hmm. influence the uh, influence the emerging transit corridors. And that's been the mantra of my what I call my main street
0: philosophy ever since then. When you came to uh, Washington in the mid-80s then, the Prentice Properties, uh, they were one of your major clients at the time when you came here? Yes, exactly. And mm-hmm. who else Who else brought you here per se to, 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 to make that influence? To, was it the Rouse it, Company? Also?
1: It was the Rouse, yeah. It was the the Prentice Properties and the Rouse Company were the two that were the most influential, what I would call development organizations that brought us here. We had the credentials of the world and equities of the world that were doing work real estate for their, basically for their, for their corporations that sustained our office development. But really the two organizations that influenced me the most from a professional standpoint were those two organizations, especially Jim Rouse and what he was doing up at Inner Harbor and in Mm -hmm. Columbia, Maryland. You know, I think that especially Jim Rouse, Prentice was still mainly an office building developer, but they were doing these office parts that had multiple uses in them. They always had a hotel in there, which had a little bit of retail and that kind of stuff. And so we had kind of hooked our wagon to that. And we had several developer clients, uh, Crocker companies down in Florida uh, that we did Crocker Center with, which was cited by ULI as a major example of mixed use, employing retail office and hospitality together, even down there. So those were all influences uh, in our practice. And we actually went on with Tom Crocker to do Meisner Park in Boca Raton, Florida. And if I had one particular substantially differentiator bet- from between Meisner and Reston Town Center is that I would say is that Reston Town Center still hung on to the ring road mall model Uh, In that if you look at it even today, it has the ring road around the mixed use and it's only now beginning to go outside of that. And we really looked at it. We really looked at mixed use development more from a new urbanist perspective in that it was a Main Street perspective where you looked at integrating it into the surrounding community that existed. And that Meister Park was basically a dead 36 acre uh, mall that had been, interestingly enough, taken over and closed by the Rouse Company, who built the mall out on 95. And so, Boca Raton, the city of downtown Boca Raton, was trying to reclaim their downtown and they purchased the 36 acre strip mall. And uh, our design, along with Tom Crocker's development and Teachers of New York, were the, the investors in it, won the competition to develop Meisner Park, which became an integrated. Uh, retail institution with a uh, museum, Boca Boca Museum of Modern Art. It had residential, it had office, it had a Jacobson's department store at the time and a six-acre park connected to it. And it really was part of a 25-block downtown Meisner Meisner addition to Boca Raton, Florida, which is still sustainable today and uh, really has put Boca Raton on the map from as a Florida sustainable city. So we went on from that and we, we were doing that project in the midst of the 89, 90 recession. Went on from there and our office hooked up with Federal Realty and uh, did Bethesda Row, did the planning for, um, for Shirlington, and did the planning for Santana Row in San Jose, California. Sure. Uh, and then today we are doing stuff for Federal
0: Realty Talk about hat. how you how that yeah. relationship developed. Federal's chairman was an interesting guy at that time. Steve Gutman. Steve Gutman, yeah, yeah. yeah. He had a vision, I think, that was kind of unique. Uh, maybe you can yeah. talk about that. Is that was that your relationship there, or was it somebody else?
1: No, absolutely. It was very much that. John Richmond was a part of that at that point in time, and John Richmond was really one of the implementers of that that really sat with uh, Gutman and really thought about uh, really developing what is, what is the idea of, what is the role does urban retail play? And what is, does what main street retail look like? Cause really basically they were a re, real estate re that was a retail fo- focused. I mean, they were basically a grocer anchored shopping
0: and Right. Suburban. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and if you look at that, I mean, you know, It really was an interesting play because Steve was pretty much a visionary from that standpoint, and Bethesda was the test pit for it. And I think if you really look at, from my personal perspective, what really influenced my uh, thinking regarding all of this stuff throughout the rest of my career, Meisner was truly the project that really caused me to realize that and codify that. The really the way to rebuild our communities, especially in these various and diverse urban cores. And it doesn't matter whether it's a first tier city, a second tier city, or a third tier city. You've got to establish that connection to community and that integrated element there. And, and if you really look at both Meisner Park and you look at Bethesda Row, we did a lot of study in the environment, the influential environments around uh, the subject site before we even started designing the site itself. And so, you know, everybody in Washington, D.C. knows Bethesda Row. And so you can envision the fact that for us, as we looked at that, the surrounding single-family neighborhoods were very important to us because at that point in time, in the early in basically 1991, when we started planning Bethesda Row, it was really still a suburban office market. Uh, the core itself was basically all commercial, and, mm-hmm. uh, and it, but it thrived off of the fact that it has some single-family neighborhoods that had an incredible demographic around it, and that's what really was was fueling what was that, at that point in time the uh, the um, Bethesda Triangle, which was basically all those restaurants up in the right. northern side sure. of, the, of Bethesda, which were melting down as far as, the, as far as the restaurant scene goes at that point in time. But Steve had this view that, that retail could be beyond uh, food and beverage from that perspective and that it could be a neighborhood-serving retail environment as well. And through the Miller Company, who owned the property around the parking garage that was built in the middle of that block down there, Steve. And his crew really took a whole new attitude of what a grocery anchored shopping center could look like, and that's really what it was because it had giant food there, right? Which was a really small giant, and there was basically industrial because it had a concrete plant, a lumber yard, and all that stuff. And because it was on the railroad line down there, and um, they had just closed the, you know, just closed that railroad line down maybe five years you know, prior to that, mid-80s, and that was becoming the Capitol Crescent Trail. And so you look at those combinations of elements there and and take the philosophy of looking at your external influencers from an urban design perspective before you start the architecture, you really begin to understand what the essence of community is. Those neighborhoods were vibrant. Those single-family neighborhoods were incredibly vibrant. But Bethesda lacked its heart because it was strictly... Built on a developer-oriented office market, did have transit that was emerging, and, and really was a connecting point. Uh, and we saw that as a valuable influencer because you had the elevator that was kind of connected into this, what would eventually today be the Southern Platform of the Purple Line and the and the Red Line, and the Bethesda to Silver Spring trolley was emerging at that point, and the Capital Crescent Trail was there, so all of a sudden you realize, okay, what's the 100% corner? Well, it's right there at Bethesda Avenue and Woodmont Avenue. And so that's why Barnes & Noble was located at that corner at that point in time, along with the small little urban fountain. And we believed that the streetcar was going to be right across the street and it was going to be a cool turntable right there. And we Made a, um, a an anchor entertainment venue, which became the landmark theater at that point. And we were going to put office on that corner, and we were going to do retail and other things. And and uh, the master plan, uh, Steve Gutman spent trying to get the Montgomery County parking lot across the street from Barnes and Noble to put residential on it. And lo and behold, ten or twelve years after Bethesda roast got got really going. The county put it up for uh, for developer competition, and 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 that's what they put there. So we saw that the combination of what was at that point in time the streetcar, the southern entrance to the metro station through the elevators and possibilities and those kind of things, and the Capitol Crescent Trail coming together that was the hundred percent corner of that particular development. That, along with the um, the parking garage and the benefits of having that parking garage in the middle of the block and being able to surround it, it made it very easy to do a grocer-anchored environment without any having to build any parking. And then, of course, we really wanted to move the giant grocer across across the street to where it is today and put residential on top of it, but the community wouldn't have it because they didn't want to see residential on top of that kind of stuff and it was even hard to put the residential at the western end of where the um, giant left and uh, but today if you really look at it and we worked on Bethesda row for 12 years before we kind of got to the final phase on it and uh, it was really a systematic putting together of a community at the southern end of Bethesda which really is influential and I think obviously as you look at it today with a purple line and the red line all coming together and having that platform along with
0: the Capitol Crescent Trail, that is ground zero in Bethesda today. So, your client there was federal, Mm -hmm. and subsequently now, other developers have gotten active in that immediate neighborhood, including Stonebridge Karras and uh, P.N. Hoffman. And currently, obviously, the the car car properties with their major mixed use development that leads into the the trail, correct? And, and actually over the top of the trail and the, the air rights, et cetera. There, mm-hmm. um, are you involved in any of those current projects? Or we're we're involved with the Avaset project with Stonebridge? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Explain and, that one a little bit. Where is that located?
1: That sits right over the uh, right over the. The tunnel, <laughs> just like a lot of the other ones do, but it's on the east side of Wisconsin Avenue. It's on the old police station site, right, right. Very tiny site, right there at. Is uh, that Montgomery Avenue? I think's the cross street yes. along Wisconsin, and it's right across the street from another county parking lot. That's an interesting thing. And in, is that very tiny site? It is uh, interesting, and I think from a standpoint is that does not include residential but it includes office and it includes hospitality it has a a marriott hotel that is connected horizontally to and and is wrapped by the office building The office building is the taller of the two structures and the hotel uh joins the office building at its core it has its own elevators as well but then it is is wrapped over the, and the office building is wrapped over the top of the hotel. And it works with the hotels that already exist right there in that particular neighborhood and kind of almost like a cul-de-sac back in there. It's very interesting because I think that, you know, that is probably the smaller of all the projects. If you look at, you know, the JBG headquarters that's there now and the Car America, the car, excuse me, not Car America, the Ali car, Project Wilson, they call it. The Will, yeah, yes. mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the huge one uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Marriott headquarters right up the street, which is you know several blocks north. But I think that the the Avaset, which is which is Stonebridge's development, we're doing several developments with them right now. One in Alexandria at called the Carlisle Crossing, which is at the Eisenhower Metro Station. But the Avaset is interesting. Thing, Lee, is that it follows a pattern that we're seeing emerging about how mixed use works in the short environment of uh, Washington, D.C., where buildings can't stack themselves on top of each other to create mixed use. They have to be joined horizontally. And we've done several projects, both in the planning phases and to fruition, where we have joined uses together horizontally because you can't afford to build top of them because of the that it has an integrated building that is integrated horizontally rather than vertically.
0: Any other um, examples of, you know, projects that are, are kind of showing you, demonstrating Cooper Carey's unique capabilities and uh, design philosophy that you can cite in this area?
1: I'll move to kind of the hospitality realm here for a minute. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, We've seen a lot of uh, development go in in the hospitality industry where you have the dual brand concepts where mm-hmm. we'll mix a Renaissance Marriott Hotel along with a homewood suites or a or, or a um, residence inn uh, in order and they'll share a core and they'll share an environment there. We say in many cases that we do these. Kinds of buildings where we expand the value of of a of a particular real estate use from a perspective by expanding uh, their brand product in in a colocation from that standpoint, uh, and, and the same thing goes for the other uses as well. You know, most all of our buildings are in environments that are dominated by one use, but also. More times than not have some some kind of retail at the base, or at least a a public portion of the building at its base, like for instance, a residential building. We may have a little bit of retail at the base, but more often than not, there is a community club or something like that that 's at the base of a residential building even today at the street level, uh, as well as maybe at the rooftop level as well. And so a lot of times we like to create those active environments. In many cases, from a residential standpoint, we'll have residential units that actually open right onto the street, especially if you're in neighborhood environments with retail, I mean with residential, uh, that aren't normally retail environments. I think the biggest mistake that you see a lot of public jurisdictions make and you saw it in Arlington for sure, is that they said that you had to have retail at the base of buildings and it wasn't really the case. And so you had retail sit there for months and years and never leased up. And we were always proponents is that you shouldn't say that you have to put retail at the base of every building because there are not every environment needs retail or can support retail. And so we, we would always steer our clients into potentially finding the main place where retail needs to be and then put active uses that the public can use or and or that the public can connect to the users of that building at the street level and have them open onto the sidewalk as well therefore you know you might create residential environments into retail and all that and i think that if i were to look at one project that we did for jbg over in arlington it's the case of where we put several single-use buildings into mixed-use environments, and that's 800-900 North Glebe, which is at the corner of Wilson Boulevard in Glebe. Uh, JBG wanted a trophy building there that Accenture went into, and and also then Virginia Tech went into the other building there. That building uh, was designed to begin to create and hopefully close, and I think you can see it today as the other developments grown up around it, at the corner of Glebe and Wilson, we really wanted that building to to come to the corner and to begin to take a very auto-dominant environment there and begin to make it still somewhat of a busy, busy urban environment, but still an urban environment that would be complemented with other buildings that would be encouraged to do the same thing. That particular project also had a component of affordable housing on it that then that transitioned the scale of that development into the communities. To the West, which were single family in Arlington County, and really became an example of how the Arlington County Housing Partnership developed some affordable housing on that particular corner that, for all intents and purposes, was better suited for commercial office development and retail as mm-hmm. well. And we there combined basically through, through tenant use groups, uh, a major university in Virginia Tech a major corporate user, which is Accenture, affordable housing on the western edge of that with the Arlington County Housing Partnership, and then uh, retail at the base of it. And so I think that was a good example of looking at the western edge of Arlington County, which was auto-dominant, was the suburban part of Arlington County even up until probably about eight or so ago, and and really began to help transform that into more of an urban environment, and then from there, most recently, we are just had just finished up a year ago the transformation of Balston Mall, which was started with Far City and ended up with Brookfield, and that now is contributing to that community as well, where we were able to take that that basically one of the first malls in America that was it was also outdoor and it had a parking structure associated with the 1950s, and just Turned the heck inside out on it and really transformed it back into a urban uh, mixed use retail facility that also has uh, the office buildings that have been added to it uh, with Bernstein doing part of it uh, in the about what, about 10 or 15 years ago, probably. And then adding residential to the eastern portion of it with Far City leading that effort in the beginning and Brookfield coming in as they bought Far City's portfolio to finish it out.
0: Those are the examples of some interesting mixed-use developments that you've been involved in, and it all comes, it sounds like, from that philosophy that you talked about, the new urbanism philosophy that, that you talked about from the early 70s, I guess it was?
1: Yeah, kind of the mid-70s. mid-70s. They, um, yeah, they, um, they convened the Congress of New Urbanism in Alexandria in the late 70s and really signed a commitment to really implement what they felt like were traditional urban design standards that began to create more walkable communities and so you know you, you have people coming out of that Jonathan Rose you know obviously Andres Dwani and his wife uh, yes. Elizabeth Zybert and uh, then you have people like that really expanded on that effort from a from a from even a urban Real estate market perspective, like uh, Chris Leinberger, who has really done a lot of research in mixed use development now in the real estate value of mixed use, and so it really was that. And, I, and really coming out of that, uh, John, we had to say, especially during the early 80s, is that we were the one of the one of the most influential architectural firms in Washington D.C. That didn't have much work in Washington D.C. because we were practicing in Florida. We were doing work in. In, uh, not only in Boca Raton, but we were doing, we were doing work along Las Olas for Terry Styles in Fort Lauderdale. And we were doing work on, along Clematis Street in West Palm Beach. Uh-huh. Uh, and then going over to Tampa and doing the Channel Side Bay stuff, which now is just exploding down there with Bill Gates money, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, in Tampa. And looking at the lessons learned from, from all of those. I, I looked up and I, I really, Said, I said, "You know, we're, we're, we still struggled at being sustainable, especially in our hometown." And we, did, we were working for Federal Realty, but they were they were rightly they were retail developers, and, and they quickly determined that they could not they, they had to partner with people in order to do the residential and those kind of things, And, and, they, and they did that for the most part as they went out and executed Shirlington and executed uh, their work at, uh, at Santana Row. And I looked around and I said, you know, we're not working for some, we'd lost contact with, and we're not working with a lot of the major developers in Washington, D.C. And so I looked and I said, you know, I need to identify the five or so development firms in Washington, D.C. that can do at least three of those uses, as I said earlier. And lo and behold, JBG was one of those. And, you know, I just went up to Rob's, one day, all uh, ULI meeting, and I says, Rob, you know, I really would like to work for you. You guys impressed me. <laughs> and and I, and I told, showed him what we did in Boca Raton and all that. And he says, come see me. So that, along with bike riding and all that, really connected me with JBG, at, 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 with uh, Brian Coulter, and Rob Stewart, and Rod Lawrence, and Ben Jacobs was the head coach over there at that point in time. And But Rob and all those guys were really taken over quickly and and so we really started doing a lot of work with them and, and, and really, really, quite frankly, doing the same thing with them that we did with Federal Realty, and then connected up with people like Low Enterprise and, and a few other people that were looking at doing mixed-use, uh, Trammel Crow commercial. Campbell Smith today is a, is a valued colleague. And we've we've done some planning work for acreage over the years, and we're we didn't win it, but we helped them out in the southwest waterfront. Obviously, P. N. Hoffman took that and did a great job. And so, you know, Far City over at the yard, uh, we've done, we've done some planning work for them over there, and and those kind of things. And um, so, we've just looked at those kind of development firms that that want to do. Great urban mixed-use environments, and, and that's where we are. And, and all during that time, we now have a. By the way, have an office in downtown Manhattan where we've taken some of these national clients that we've had and are now starting to emerge. Is that uh, all these former mall clients that we had, like Simon and Vernado, and which now is turned into Urban Edge Brookfield, which is now bought. The far city portfolios—they're all looking at these mall sites and figure, trying to figure out what do we do. We've got to add mixed use, and so we feel like that we can take our philosophy of looking at the influences that are that are surrounding these large formerly single-use designed environments and seeing how these external influences are affecting them and changing them, and how do we apply. These connections to community that, in many cases, have matured around these malls that used to be at interchanges and stuff like that, and major road intersections, and really create community out of them. And, and the new urbanist principles of streets and blocks, walkable communities, ten-minute walks, five-minute walks—all those things of integrated social interaction as well as as well as institutional interaction are all new urbanist principles that go beyond the business formulas of real estate. They really, if if I really look at the difference, is that the new urbanism uh, was was looking at the aesthetic issues of building community, not to leave ULI out of the equation because we feel like I feel like that early on the with, with the influencers of Bill Hudnut and others at that point in time, Maureen McAvey and and the, the people that were, that were chairing ULI nationally were really, even J.C. Nichols and his examples of Country right. Club Plaza were right. all about looking and connecting to community. The one thing that convinced me that ULI really had the prevailing and sustainable influence here was, is that they really brought together those aesthetic things as well as the real estate business sense of really wanting to see our cities thrive both economically as well as socially and aesthetically and environmentally. And I think that that influenced me to really be involved from a core perspective.
0: In an Urban how, do you, Institute. how do you differentiate yourself with your competition, David? So, there are some very good architects in town. I can talk about Hickok Cole. I can talk about uh, Shilombarenas. You know, there are various other firms, you know, HOK and some of the big institutional firms. How do you, what sets Cooper Carry apart from those in your mind? What, what, what's your, what are your uh, differentiating factors? Factors.
1: Yeah. And you just mentioned a bunch of architectural firms and a bunch of architects individually that I admire a lot. Hickok Cole, Yolanda and Michael, you know, Shalom you know, the various people at at the other larger, more national firms, which you talked about as far as HOK and the likes, all do great work. I had some partners that we actually convened also in Alexandria back in 89 and 90 to really determine exactly how we were going to focus our practice. I think that if you look at Cooper Carey, uh, we have a group of people that are mixed-use architects first, uh, and then we have people that determine that, that they want to be experts in those individual uses as it relates to, I call it the fundamental four uses of, of development architecture, which are the residential office, retail, and hospitality. And from a service standpoint, we put as much emphasis on the urban design as we do on the architecture. Uh, Jerry Cooper, who I haven't mentioned him yet, but Jerry Cooper, who basically was the founding partner of Cooper Carey, turned 90 this year, and he still comes into the office at least three times a week and is very active in the firm as chairman of the board. He said from the very beginning that the spaces between buildings are as important as the buildings themselves. And we say that like a mantra every day of the week at Cooper Cary. And I think the one thing that emerged from us as we opened our office and practiced in Washington, D.C., we laugh about it because we had never brought an attorney to a local jurisdiction to tell them what we were going to do from a development standpoint until we came to Washington, D.C. And it seemed like we learned very quickly that in Washington, D.C., where we were working, we, we had to learn how to build community. We had to learn how to to really employ our statement about connecting to community and the spaces between the buildings were as important as the buildings themselves. And the transitions from those buildings into the existing communities were as important as the buildings themselves. And I think that as architects, many times we have as big an ego as our developer clients do. And we think that we, then a lot of architects try to force their designs onto community. Mm-hmm. And we have always had a statement in Cooper Carey, and we still have it today, is that to elevate the human experience through design excellence. And I th- think that means understanding community as much about doing buildings that that only meet our our artful egos. And you have a lot of coffee table architects out there uh, and we deal with that every day of the week where developers seem to be forced to bring New York and international coffee table architects to Washington DC. And because those architects have formulas that are maybe high rise formulas or formulas that are international or whatever, they come to Washington and run smack dab into community-based development, and they do their worst work here. I think that Cooper Carey puts the urban design emphasis out there just as, and then there are no formulas to it. It it is a community-based, a very contextual design, and that doesn't mean that we do traditional cookie-cutter-paste architecture. We look at the community and look at its core values. Uh, Mm -hmm. Both aesthetically and historically and geographically, physically, Mm -hmm. and look at those things. And we design our buildings not based on architectural or urban design formulas, but with formulas that evolve from its from the roots of the influences of the community. And I think that's why many times you see us doing some of our best work in those fine-grained communities like Alexandria, Falls Church. You know, even in places like Georgetown, where the grain of the architecture is much finer. Well, you also have character,
0: you have existing character that you can work with there. Yeah, that's Um, correct. Downtown Bethesda, when you did that, you had to create your own character there a little bit. Correct. So um, there wasn't really an existing, you know, format that you've established there. So there was somewhat of a de novo thought process, it seems to me, there. uh, Yeah, right the other markets you talked about.
1: Yeah, and in fact, it's really funny because I think the only parameter that Steve Gutman put on us was is that he kind of liked the factory like Chicago style. And so if you look at a lot of the buildings that we did there, it has that fine-grained masonry material Mm -hmm. combined with the fact that a lot of what we only had to work with there except for two or three of the buildings that are the mainstay buildings there uh, it dealt with tenant retail tenant storefront, mm-hmm. and so in that case, the individual brand and allowing the tenant to build the brand and its identity, at the street was a major uh, influencer in determining what the difference between main street retail is from mall mall retail is. So, so, so he, pointed to, Chicago,
0: brand. he yeah, pointed to he did. Chicago. He pointed Chicago, like he Michigan pulled, Avenue. Was that was he thinking about, or what? What was he thinking about?
1: The whole warehouse style and the and the factory style stuff of Chicago, not necessarily Michigan Avenue, because Michigan Avenue has a pretty large brand from that standpoint. I mean, you have got flagship people there, right? But I do think that he took Michigan Avenue from a standpoint of is that even the little retailer needs to have its brand statement on Main Street. So mm-hmm. if you if you look at traditionally and Bethesda Rose, a great example of this is is that we allowed a heck of a lot of freedom with the retail storefronts um, at Bethesda Row in that every retailer can kind of have its own design. Mm -hmm. And we didn't tell them what they had to do, but we did tell them what made great brand design, what made great entry design, and what made great show window design. But I think that differentiates us is that we look at the urban design as just as much of an important factor. And we have for a long period of time. I think that's why we have always been very good, and we we have a great reputation of being able to work through entitlements with the local jurisdictions, especially in Washington D.C., and being able to build that consensus with our development
0: opportunities there. So let's kind of look at the uh, issues that we're dealing with today, with the COVID nineteen crisis, and and the obviously over time, your firm, among others, have you know been. Really focused on urbanization, the transit oriented design development activities, and the developers in, in Washington and around the world have focused on urbanization. And obviously, the demographics have followed. So, well, the demographics led it to some extent, that the millennial generation is very attracted to the urban environment and being close and social, et cetera, et cetera. With this crisis, We all think that eventually, once we have a a vaccine, that things will go somewhat back to normal. But I don't know, my gut tells me that it it won't, that this is a crisis that's going to have pervasive effects on society, at least for the rest of my life, and perhaps for my children's lives as well. So I'm curious what your perspective is and how this will affect design going forward from an architectural perspective in your thinking. Mm -hmm
1: we were already living in an environment somewhat driven by our kids, meaning yours and our kids, the millennials. You know, my kids were are born uh, over a 10-year span of time from 84 to 94, and they're all out and about now and doing their thing. At least an example of mine, they're in three very different environments. Uh, I've got a a son and a daughter-in-law with two grandkids that live in LA and they just bought a house in East LA and they are LA urban poor, (laughs) but they're living close to the environment and with their industry and they're with and all that. And that's great. I've got another daughter that's kind of at the other end of the spectrum that lives with her husband. She's a physical therapist in Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And that's a good example of an emerging second, third tier city that is very affordable to live in. At least, in, right now it is. But they would rather w- live a little more rural or a little more—I would say rural. They—they they like she likes horses, and they have some horses, and they want to live out from downtown, but they can connect very close to Raleigh by which they like that urban, urban environment to be able to go to from that perspective. And now, most recently, I've got two daughters. One that lives very urban. In Atlanta, Georgia, and works at Grady Hospital downtown. Mm-hmm. And she's an urban pioneer. And the, the other daughter and her husband live out in Douglasville, and, but in a very much connected kind of new urbanist environment out there. Mm-hmm. And then we hope to get back to Atlanta, then live at Grant Park in urban downtown Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I'm in my old age, whenever that might happen, I want to be very connected to a downtown environment. And I think that. We have this great collision. Uh, we already had this great collision of the millennials wanting to be in where the action is, whether it be in, in an integrated environment, no matter what. And then uh, us older people, a lot of us didn't want to be taken out of that environment and they wanted to have that connection. And um, we may not want to live in an urban high rise, but we, we want to be connected to that environment. We were already moving in that direction. And those environments were emerging, better environments were emerging, were pervasive in all of those uh, environments, whether it be better designed suburban environments, better designed close-in urban neighborhood infill or downtown cores. I think we were already moving in that direction. And I think that for good reason, we had, in Atlanta's a good example, the rubber band had it stretched as long as we could in these single-use environments. And it had to snap back. If not, we were going to break everything. And I think Chris Leinberger and other people that are researching that are proving that out is that, you know, all these walkable communities are springing up everywhere. Some are better than others. Some are more suburban than others. But they still allow us alternatives to having to live with the car. Technology is going that way as well. So we had these influences already. I think I said, as we first started talking about what is the greatest influence that this pandemic has placed upon us and what will we come out of it is, is I think we will begin to exploit the technology that allows us to live closer together, but also in better environments. Uh, we no longer have, with the influence of, of the environmental movement, with the influence of the, of the need to reinvent our healthcare systems and all those kind of things, I think we have this incredible, perfect storm collision here that is forcing us to, to really use American ingenuity and to think about from an entrepreneurial public-private standpoint, how we finally merge all this stuff together, blur the lines. I, I call it blurring the lines of real estate. I call it blurring the lines of life. And I think we're going to be doing that. We may still do a lot of the same things that we've done coming out of this pandemic, but we're, we're certainly going to look a lot different. And I think it will be more blurred. I think that you and I will be learning to, instead of going into a doctor's office to have our physical done, we will do it right online. Right. And uh, we won't have to spend an hour going to the doctor's office. We'll just do it right online. If we have some complication or something, we won't go to the hospital. We will go to the local community outpatient clinic and, and get it done right there.
0: Let's run through the uses real quick, just quickly go through each of the uses and talk about what you're thinking is with regard to some changes that could be coming up. So let's start with the office market, because Washington is a dominant office market. How do you think the office sector is going to change with with the result of this uh, from a design perspective?
1: I think you're going to see more co-working environments rather than single large corporate office buildings. Not to say that you won't have build-a-suits. You know, I'm spending a lot of time, which I enjoy, spending along around with my kids. And, and, and heck, I've hired all my kids in my office, it seems like. And I see how tech-savvy they are and how how willing they are d- despite the fact that we, cl- we complain about them. They They are very entrepreneurial. And I think that they are they are driving the social interaction of how we work and the technology that now we're now being forced to employ in all of this is that you will see far more co-working environments than you will see the large format corporate facilities because i think more corporations are going to embrace the idea of work from home environments work on work on the go environments and those kind of things. And we won't need these large office full plates like we've had in the past.
0: But what about the spacing issue? I mean, is that going to come into into play in design or is that not going to be as much of an issue?
1: I don't know. I think we'll figure that out. I mean, I I put my faith in our incredible researchers and scientists that Mm -hmm. we've seen performing on the television over the last uh, month or so. Mm-hmm. And their abilities to find ways for us to cope with all of this virus stuff. I, I've got a lot of friends, have, having lived in Bethesda and Rockville, pretty much all my life, I've got a lot of friends at NIH and, and the CDC and food and drug. And, and they say at any given point in time, we're just a step ahead of these envir- viruses anyway. You know, I believe that this was an, an incredible accident that originated in China and that, and that we've got to be learn to be more careful about that. And I think we in America are more careful about it. That doesn't mean we're not susceptible to it. But I, I think that we will be back to, to be being, doing the important social networking things. Uh, and, and I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater in the office environments. We talk about constantly is that it's important for us to be together as architects and other people in order to collaborate and think. I just think we're going to do it in far more flexible environments. Interesting. If, if you look at these companies like Accenture and Deloitte and all that, they they spend most of their time in their clients' offices. Yeah, it's
0: plug and play and, for them. Yeah, right? you know, mm-hmm.
1: and and I think that it can be plug and play more so for everybody. Right. In many cases, and look at it from that perspective.
0: In retail, I think we've seen, uh, obviously, change, dramatic change over the last, say, 15, 20 years, regardless of what's going on currently. Seeing Neiman Marcus filing bankruptcy yesterday was mm-hmm. was an interesting news. I didn't start my career, but early in my career, I was in regional mall development myself. Yeah. So, uh-huh. you know, and my dad was a, was a retailer, a large retailer with a department store. So I have that. Orientation and it just it it just is incredible to me to see what's happened to the department store environment, the regional mall environment, and uh, you know retail in general. Other than the grocery, grocery, the practical side of retail, which yeah. will, will yeah. never the daily living stuff never mm-hmm. change really. But uh, the whole fashion industry and the whole point of sale shopping has mm-hmm. changed, and so what's your feeling about that and is the crisis today have impact on that long term do you think or is that just one of the other factors that that you're dealing with in the retail sector
1: it's it's very interesting as much as i felt like i've a considerable core of my design practice has been involved in retail i wouldn't call myself a retail expert as it relates to the industry of designing retail because retail for the most of my career was accomplished in malls, and, and quite frankly, I've <laughs> I, don't, I don't see malls as the ultimate enemy or devil in all of this. That was just the way you were able to collect uh, retail into incredibly regional environments that really were pervasive uh, in an auto dominant society. And I think now that we've reverted back to a walking and walking environment society for the most part in a lot of different venues and scales, we're going to see retail get collected that way for the most part. I think that really the the role of the, you know, the department store was just a collection of retail, fashion mm-hmm. retailers that would go into one big box. And, right. and, and your dad probably had several of those in his medium to small boxes, maybe. And then somebody else like Belk's had a little few more. And then Macy's and and certainly Sears collected a lot of those, you know, over the years. And that was a very interesting thing about looking at catalog sales with warehouses that also had retail outlets in them. They had the analog version of what the internet is today.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and, and so, you know, there's some some, it gets back to this whole idea of do the fundamental core of things ever really change? And I think that even in the power center stuff is that Walmart is a collection of retailers that are in this big value box. Right. I think that what's going to happen here with the, not only with the pandemic, but where it was all going anyway with with retail is that, that those antiquated big department store environments that were only, you had to go to the department <laughs> store to do right. it. They're gone. And those people who do not embrace those retailers who are not either coming out of that online environment or in, in embracing the multi channel environments or coming from the whole shopping experiential environment and moving into the online environment, those are the retailers that are going to survive. And I think that hopefully, and I've seen it happen, is that. The larger format retailers, like the Targets of the World and all those kind of things, you know, they're now able to, if, they, if they're if they multi-channeling, if they're online as well as having shopping, they're actually able to scale their stores down now. Mm-hmm. We've done a Target store in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There's a part of a mixed-use development that was uh, affiliated with the University of North Carolina that has a 14,000-square-foot Target. Yep. And you can order anything you want that you can get from Target, and they'll Mm -hmm. deliver it to that Target right there, and you can pick it up. Yeah. And they don't have to stock it. As long as they've got it online, they get it to that place. Amazon is coming from the other direction. They have Amazon Locker Hub locations that I can – In Atlanta, Georgia, I can go up to Georgia Tech and they've got a hub on 5th Street up there and I can order anything I want on Amazon and pick it up there if I don't want to have it delivered to my house in Atlanta or whatever it might be. So to me, retail is on the forefront of being influenced by online shopping and all that. However, you can't ignore the fact from an aesthetic perspective, and we would say this, is that retail is the engine that drives the urban social environment. And it is connected to uses that include entertainment, fashion, right. the daily needs of life, food and beverage, and all that
0: stuff. And, so and it's, it the is, magnet. it's the magnet to people. Basically.
1: Yes. But it doesn't have to be 850,000 square feet of single-use
0: stuff surrounded by a parking lot. <laughs> oh, but the, the thing that... The pandemic questions, in my mind, yeah, is the, is the collection of people in the densities that they've been. Yeah. So, for instance, in the entertainment environment, in a restaurant that's tightly packed, mm-hmm. in a theater that's tightly packed, in a stadium that's tightly packed, is mm-hmm. that going to change? And to, to me, those are retail environments yeah. in some form or fashion. I, I would say
1: I would say I hope not. I love intimate environments more than I like big environments. I have mm-hmm. always been a person that would advocate for smaller, tighter, more intimate environments than large no man's land. If you look at Bethesda Row, right, that's all about creating an intimate streetscape, not a huge streetscape. It's no. about creating intimate plaza. Now, some of that's because that's all we had to work with. I think if Meijer Park had a six-acre park going down the middle of it, because that was mandated by the city of Boca Raton, because they wanted to bring the Florida State University circus to Boca Raton, Florida, and be able to perform down the middle. But because the buildings weren't that big on either side of it, that space leaks, leaks out, and it doesn't feel like a all the time. It doesn't feel like a great environment. It's a great environment, but it has problems because. It's not a outdoor urban living room environment. It's it's too big. And so to me, I think that we are social individuals and we like to run into people and we like to be involved in in fairly large environments where I can go to a wolf trap and have be on the lawn and spread out and be right next to another person with three kids and have fun, you know, kind of thing. I want to be in Piedmont Park in Atlanta, or I want to be down on the mall in D.C. Now, the mall's pretty big. You can go there and you can be pretty social distance, no matter what. But there are times during the tourist season that, fireworks. that you you yeah. cannot, yeah. yeah, the fireworks and all that stuff, you can't stir, stir with a stick down there. It would be a shame if something like the pandemic affects us that way that we can't, whether it be psychologically or socially or even scientifically, get over that. You know there have been pandemics in the past, you know, and we've gotten over those, and and I think yes, I think this
0: this soon will pass as well. That's great to hear. I sent you an article in, about taste, mm-hmm. and which I'm going to share in the show notes. Talk to me about your your feeling about this. Is a design philosophy, it seems like, from all by the name of Graham. Graham, yeah, mm-hmm. and I'd like to get your thoughts about it a little bit, and he had several principles in there. This could go on long, so let's try yeah. and keep it, keep it, you know, to maybe yeah. five or ten minutes, uh, uh, your perspective of that, maybe cite some of those in a bullet fashion and just kind of go through them a little bit, mm-hmm. your yeah. thought process relative to thinking about uh, taste and what your definition right. of that might be. Yeah. we
1: Will do. Well, I've got it up here on my computer screen, and I actually – have sent it to all my partners because it's an, I think it's an incredible, comprehensive, broad-based article about design. And, you know, it takes all aspects. I mean, maybe just to say all professions, I guess. Is this is this, the article's taste for makers. Makers is kind of a new word for designers. Uh, you have the whole maker economy and all that kind of stuff. And, and so, I, I look at you know, his title, Makers, is really designers. Everybody who's designing this, the great writer, is the great painter, is the great architect, even the great engineers, you know, the great poets, the great theatrical musicians, and those kind of things, and really brings all that into this, almost this white it's paper the, of the art of, of creation, of what it all is.
0: basically. It? it is,
1: absolutely. And I look at the word taste. It's very interesting. Taste is a very interesting word. And quite frankly, I haven't looked it up at all of its meanings and how its origins from from Greek might be. You may know. (laughs) But I I look at that, and I think that today in our environment, a lot of times I get asked, well, what style is this building going to be? And a lot of times I say, well, what difference does it make? You can talk about a style that somebody might like in their head but you can do something in that's a particular style that is a very bad design. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's trying to say is that design without taste can go wrong very quickly. And, and we should always be looking to enhance and uh, perfect our design as individuals, as makers, a call to that profession. He talks a lot about the, the master painters of the world, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, the master poets, the master architects, uh, including Wright and and others, Bernelli and and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, he he really does a, I think, a good job of of comprehensively touching all the bases of you know what's good taste in music, what's perceived as good taste in in art, and what's good taste in in storytelling and in architecture and engineering. And all of them have their different influences and ways that they perfect taste. I guess the best way to kind of do this in some respects is to talk a little bit about the four paragraphs that are, yeah, paragraphs that he has that really relate to my practice and my philosophy. And, And I think our firm's philosophy, and I think in architecture is what the words that we hear a lot about is it's not about, it's not about style in many cases because as architects, we think that different styles over the ages are what uh, we um, we are influenced by based on evolutions of what the influences are in our architectural so that were structural related. You know, they stacked the big cathedrals up because that's what they did. You know, they stacked stones on top of each other. And if you really go and analyze those great cathedrals of Europe, you see how imperfected they were as you really look at the, the arches and the the and the the vaulted ceilings that were that were built by just stacking a stone on top of each other they weren't that exact necessarily because they the stones weren't that exact and then the romans came along and invented concrete and you know they were able to increase the spans and you know and and so you, you look at that and and you see the you know the idea of more open spaces and then all of a sudden we created steel and and you have the Miesian stuff and and then in, and in some cases there are people who would say as we left man behind at that point in our design <laughs> of architecture uh, because it was cold and it was it was scaleless and all that but then corbusier came through and kind of brought it back together again although you can complain about his style and all that stuff so you know did he do modern architecture in good taste or bad taste is where i look at it but we always are perfecting something that design is simple. And I think that we too often as architects uh, get influenced by ideas and thoughts that, that create messy architecture. And uh, I've been, I can certainly look at some of my designs over the years and say is that the, that wasn't, the, the, the thought was right in creating a, maybe a warehouse kind of a design but the taste wasn't very well perfected on it. It wasn't my best work and that kind of thing. So in our our goal a lot of times is, is that's the first thought is always sometimes your best thought, but how to keep it simple as you perfect it is important from that perspective as well. So you know, the collaboration in our environment here is that usually an idea comes from one individual, but then we can collaborate and ask others regarding you know, how, how might I best perfect this, but keep it simple and not make it messy? We say a lot in our firm that our designs are timeless. And I think that that is a key element is that you look at the best works throughout history of great uh, makers, great designers, is that those are the classics. Those are the timeless ones. Those are, that's the music that we listen to most often, whether it be classic rock <laughs> or, and we, we, we far more often are willing to listen to a classical music and classic rock far longer than we're willing to listen to hip hop. And we complain a lot of times about architects in our community that are doing uh, hip hop architecture. They, they, there's, it's the style of the day. It gets back to Graham's comparison of taste to fashion. You know, fashion is here today, gone tomorrow. And, you know, something done with bright colors we get tired of very quickly. That's why a lot of architects wear black and gray and white. <laughs> but, it's real easy. It's real easy. But there are those that can do color and use it very effectively in good taste. And, and those, those projects stand out. You have people like Gary who some people say his architecture of waves and ribbons and all that stuff are, are very busy and they're just disturbing and all this stuff. But I got to tell you, he has learned to perfect and make concert halls on the outside look like works of sculpture and architecture rather Mm -hmm. than big boxes that nobody likes to walk around. Uh, I can go to the Disney Performing Arts Center in LA and I can walk around that building all day long and find nooks and crannies that are just fascinating. So, you know, and he works very hard at it and he works it very hard at creating a form that accepts and embraces the function on the inside. And, and Graham talks a lot about form follows function. I think that we can do that in good taste or bad taste as well, because if you literally were to follow form follows function, you might just create a function that's very much like a box and, mm-hmm. and, and not create great form On the outside and in the design of an exterior of a building not only is in the massing but it's also in the articulation and the detailing of the massing Uh, and you can see a lot of buildings Uh, it's like a great car that you 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 can take a 57 Chevrolet with its fins and all that and that was a classic car from its form all the way down to its detailing. And it wasn't supposed to be a very expensive car either. It was a car that, that had good bones uh, and then its detail followed the good bones. And that's the way I would look at it from an architectural standpoint. I think that it's always interesting to design with some uh, whimsical aspirations in mind. It's always fun to discover something as you look at a painting uh, more deeply. It's always fun to experience a piece of architecture that is that you, you find something different when you're up close to it than you do when you're far away from it. Uh, that's why I think that when Jerry Cooper said the spaces between buildings are as important as the buildings themselves, especially in urban environments, uh, we as humans experience buildings from about eh, 30 to 60 feet down. And we have a lot of buildings in all environments that don't meet the ground very well because we wanted to, an architect wanted to enforce their design on the community. And and I think that's another thing that he talks about as well is, is that you come with the idea that there are going to be many people experiencing your work and uh, you want them to be able to understand it and you want them to be able to enjoy it. And I think buildings that are designed with connection to community in mind are going to be far more successful i had one partner at one point say that these environments that we design need to be so simple and so recognizable that even your grandmother can understand it <laughs> and uh, and i think that goes a long way is that the common man uh, architecture is for common man as well as the elite and if we dealt with buildings that were all iconic in nature we would probably get pretty tired of those environments. The uh, the other thing that Graham said, I think, in architecture was, is that the buildings often become backgrounds to environments that people enjoy. And and we say that a lot at Cooper Carey, is, is that a lot of our buildings end up being backgrounds to the urban open space or urban environment public realm that people enjoy to meet in. And I think that's important. That, that came out of my reading
0: this article that he wrote. So some of the other principles uh, he talks about are you talked about the hum- humorous piece which is interesting mm-hmm. this he talks about suggestivity or suggestiveness mm-hmm. to it which there's an emotional element to design too where you have this attraction that's an emotional kind of a gut feeling mm-hmm. about something which I'd be interested in your thoughts and then he said it looks hard in some respects very Challenging and difficult thought provoking, and then at the other at the same time, it could look easy, it looks easy, along with the concepts of symmetry similar to nature, and sometimes sometimes even strange or awkward hmm. or unusual, and then finally daring, which was I thought was an interesting concept as well, so maybe you could speak hmm. to those a little bit. Do we have another two hours? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we probably don't.
1: <laughs> let me, you, you hit you hit a lot of chords that I want to hit, <laughs> um, but let me just say this: is that you know, design is hard, but in many times it it looks easy, and I think that's the key to success of something. It, it, not only architectural design, but wow, you I I, I look at. What it takes to do a painting, but an artist would tell you that fewer strokes are better than many strokes, and he talks about that a lot. And I, and I think as I as I talked about the factors of keeping it simple, to me, design is very hard. I can't count the many times on the, that I end up with multiple layers of of wadded up tracing paper sitting around me as I trace over and draw over and start over on ideas at the beginning of things. And and I've got guys and gals in my office as they look at ideas and sketch ideas over layer of a layer of tracing paper, they create rainbows on the table because of the different magic markers that they use and all this stuff. And they're <laughs> great looking drawings too. Uh-huh. But, but a lot of times the most simple drawing is the instigation of an incredible idea that gets developed and all that. And I think that all those things about design is hard, design should be kept simple, design should be suggestive, design should be innovative. I think that are all are all combinations. It can be a, an integrated part of the process that that we all go through as maker, designer people. And uh, in, in, in even in problem solving as well, they talked about the great great math mathematicians and the problem solving that they do and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. The daring part is, is that I, I don't think we should ever shy away from being daring in design. Um, y- you look at what design and taste does as influencers in our world. It is one of those things that either turns people on or turns people off i mean the the debate and the argument that goes on around a piece of art uh, or or a story or even a building uh, is incredible <clears throat> and i think that unfortunately in the development community economics plays a huge portion of this but i will say this is that we've tried to connect ourselves with a lot of the great developers in the washington region who who tend to want to be more innovative than mundane and, and I appreciate that environment. I often tell, and, and we say this in talking about our, our firm's experience in ULI as well, is that we're practicing in three pretty innovative cities. That's where we have our offices in Atlanta, DC, and New York. And we also have three of the more innovative urban and institute cities. Uh, in the United States as well, we collaborate with people in all three of those cities in within, within ULI communities that really push us to the limit. And and I would say that I would much rather work for a developer client or a, a higher education institutional client or a public sector client that demands my best. Than one that would just be a yes person to whatever I would want to give them. Uh, Demanding clients always make us better architects. I think that when you're talking about the fact that good design solves the right problem, a focused client is much better than a distracted and confused client. I really want to hear their thoughts and their desires and their goals. I want to understand who they are and what they want. You know, Rob Lawrence and Rob Stewart and Brian Coulter always had their opinions and and they were always, always have been very influential. And the same thing that goes today as Matt Kelly and Andy Van Horn and, and all the others at JBG today have a very demanding attitude towards wanting to do the best for a community and all that. I would say that the other thing that I haven't, they haven't talked about it all and, and don't, need, don't need to because we'd be here for another two hours, is that we, we were asked to come to, to Crystal City in 1999 by Charles E. Smith because PTO was moving out of Crystal City and the BRAC stuff was just beginning. And they asked us the fundamental question, what would we do with Crystal City if we could tell you anything that we wanted to do? That I wanted to do, and I said, "Well, let's come over and and spend a weekend at Crystal City, and then we'll start to tell you what we do." What do? And you know, we we all kind of know what we discovered because everybody knows what Crystal City was. It was it was basically an auto dominant environment. But we so we proceeded in the first generation to way all the streets to embrace a better street and block environment and to import mixed use development to turn it out to the street. And we did some of the first entitlements of turning turning Crystal Drive into. Crystal City's Main Street and did the first phase of that and have been working there ever since on various and sundry things. Now, first with Smith, then with Vernado, and now with JBG Smith. And and that'll be a very interesting environment to see where that goes. I actually think that Crystal City has uh, the best of chances of being transformed far before Tyson's Corner will be transformed. <laughs> but therein lies the issue, is, is, is that that Crystal City in and of itself, from an architectural standpoint, an environmental standpoint, tackles all these things that are in his article. You can discover even today things that are design-oriented, either in the urban environment, in the plazas that are there, and stuff like that, that are, that are kind of funny. You know, oh, yeah, that's kind of funny, but you know, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, You know, why did they do that? You know, or something you know, and they maybe even even didn't consciously do it, you know, didn't even consciously do it, and I think there are things now that are that are really out there on the limb. I mean, whoever thought you would take a nineteen sixty office building and turn it into a we work facility
0: yeah, in some ways, it'd be nice if bob if Bob Smith yeah. had lived long enough to see what's happened to Crystal City uh, from his original vision of it. And to see uh, the Amazon deal being made there, because so we had him, I don't know if you were at the Trends Conference a few years ago, but he spoke about <laughs> his first uh, vision of Crystal City when a broker took him there to show the, the, the rail yards as they were at that time. And he envisioned, let's just buy this and start building something on this. And his father told him he was nuts. <laughs> Why was he doing yeah, that?
1: Exactly. He told me that story personally before he did that at the Trends Conference. And I was, I was shocked. I wasn't shocked necessarily, but, but it was very intriguing to say, I said, Bob, what were you thinking when you started your first building right there, corner right. 23rd and what is today, and now Jeff Davis Highway? And he, he said, just to get an office building built to attract a government sector tenant. And That's he says, right. then we just started from there. And all of a sudden I said, well, yeah, I certainly can see that you just started from there. But he fell into some incredible things in that he mixed residential into it, right. and, and and you know it was the best he could. He integrated it all in an auto dominant environment. But really, that's what it was. It was it was a suburban auto dominant mixed use environment that, mm-hmm. that there, and so it ended up having some incredible bones done with fairly good taste. But then it kind of degenerated into very. It became
0: a concrete jungle, basically. It did.
1: It very much did. And so, you know, I think we can learn a lot about that. And, you know, it's very interesting because there are, I'm going to pick up on the word symmetry in nature, those two words, because there's a lot of symmetry in nature and there's a lot of asymmetry in nature. And, And architecture has always been influenced by nature. And it's one of our paradigms that we always look at in our urban design, as well as our design is connect with nature. And that doesn't mean literally necessarily, but sometimes it does mean geographically. As we deal more and more with the whole net zero and energy issues and environmental sustainability, we are connecting more and more with nature and architecture is is metaphorically and literally connecting with nature through our, our passive orientation to get to net zero, our design and using technology in order to get to net zero and in those kind of things we're looking at the way you know the west indies and the prevailing winds and the architecture of those areas where they used to take advantage of the natural environment until air conditioning was invented and uh, <laughs> but now we can use it's very easy in some cases for us to get to certain levels of sustainability as we measure them through the you know the usgbc and other kind of evaluation criteria uh, but even that stops short and doesn't totally fulfill the idea of getting back to design and connecting with nature from an architectural perspective with the technology and the, the knowledge that we have related to that. I look at that and I look at trees that grow up in forest and that grow up near the coast and all that, and while some of their fundamental structure may be symmetrical, because of the influences of the wind or the influence of influences of other plants and their need for sunlight and all that, they tend to grow towards the light and they tend to bend with the wind, which many times, if you look at them individually, they end up being asymmetrical. And as architects, I think we find beauty in the combination of foundational symmet- symmetry with asymmetrical articulation. It's more kinetic. It's more it becomes more whimsical, it becomes more, more interesting and moving to, to walk around and look at it changes as you walk around, whereas something that is purely pure vanilla symmetry will, will not necessarily be as interesting as it is. But
0: good asymmetrical buildings also have symmetry built into them. Interesting. Well, David, could we uh, shift gears now for just the final, our final segment here? And I wanted to t- talk a little bit about uh, how you would look at hiring, bringing on a new architect. Uh, what kind of capable you know uh, elements you're looking for, and also as a young person yourself, putting yourself in your in your 25 year old body, how you would look to how would you, what you tell that person today as far as uh, your career and how you how you came about uh, where you are now.
1: I. Have practiced architecture in during a period of time where we were coming out of uh, one way of <clears throat> becoming an architect or participating in the design of buildings uh, and evolving into the next. And I think we are somewhat evolving, you know, now even more, maybe even back a little bit to the way architecture was practiced in the generation just prior to mine. When I graduated from Georgia Tech and started architectural practice, you you could become a arch- registered architect in about three different ways, but two predominant ones. You either went to architecture school, you graduated with a Bachelor of architectural degree, you worked for three years, got your credits, and you set for the exam. And you were tested, and if you passed, you became a licensed architect. You could also become an architect by working for seven to ten years in an architectural firm, gaining architectural knowledge and putting buildings together, and then apply to the accreditation board with your experience in a architectural firm and who was your under-registered re- architect or multiple architectural firms under multiple registered architects and you could sit for the exam, and if you passed it, you became a licensed architect. The third, the third version of that was similar to the first version in that the schools were switching from five-year bachelors of architectural degree to programs that you could go to undergraduate school anywhere you wanted to go with any kind of degree that you wanted, and then pl- apply to a graduate school, and if accepted to graduate school in design or architecture. Uh, you could then get a master's in architecture degree. And so all the schools were kind of transforming into that when uh, when I was uh, enrolling at Georgia Tech. And so that's why I went with the 4-2 program and, and had to go all the way to graduate school in order to sit for the architectural licensing exam. That evolved. And the the one where you don't go to some kind of school either getting an undergrad or a graduate degree, the one where you just worked in certain places but pretty much gone and is now now most people who are in architectural firms and are architects, our own staff that way, are in some form or fashion trained in higher education in some form or fashion. Therefore, we are melded into a melding pot, though, that fundamentally was the fact that architecture has always been imagined and produced with multiple, multiple people with multiple talents. And that affects my hiring. And I think it affects the hiring at Cooper Carey dramatically as we go out and interview people in that there are, I think, fundamentally three core groups of people that desire to be architects and influential in the architectural profession. There are those great big idea designers that are incredible. And you look at them and, and they just come up, come up with great idea after great idea. And they're fundamentally what we call our talented designers. And, uh, but they are horrible finishers usually. They, they, don't, <laughs> they don't have enough attention span to ever finish something. And they've got to have somebody who believes that great architecture is in the details. And those are, our, in some cases, our, our great designer technicians, and those are the people that become our great project architects. That that maybe can't design their way with a big idea out of a paper bag, but they certainly know how to finish it. They're the people that put. They're the people that are the that are like the people who are put the fine details on the great Ferraris or the or even the 1957 Chevrolet mm-hmm. Airs or whatever. They're the detailers. They're the they're the great finishers. And without them, we could never uh, put buildings together. Then there are those people who are the great organizers. They're, they're great generalists. They are the people who manage all these cats and these architectural firms who are the great starters and the great finishers. Uh-huh. But there's somebody like, kind of like me is that they're not great business people. And so they can't manage a good project, you know, and those kind of things. Uh, you, the longer you practice, the better you come at it for sure. But, but they're the great project manager people that take these huge complicated projects that we're doing these days and really learn how to whip a team together and really motivate. When I'm hiring someone, I, I really like to very quickly help them understand what's, what's their core talent and what's their core trait in the design perfect profession and what, what is it that they always come back to and they never get tired of doing. And if they're honest with with themselves, they aren't all those great big idea people, and they aren't all those great technical people, and they all aren't those project manager people. Most people come out of college think they're pretty good designers, but they have a hard time recognizing that they aren't the great designers. And but it's okay not to be those great designers because probably eighty-five percent of the people aren't those. The people that are the core of the profession. I think, because they're the great finishers and they understand great design when they see it, but they don't necessarily aren't necessarily the Michelangelos of the world or the Mies van der Rose of the world or, or the Frank Lloyd Wright's of the world. And so, Cooper Carey is made and formulated as a full-service design firm. And so, we have to have all those people. Mm-hmm. And, and so, fundamentally, we're looking for a good balance of all those people so that We can all come together and we can make decisions in this sole idea and mission of great design. Or in the case of Graham's article, good taste. (laughs) I interview people and my colleagues interview people looking for those kind of traits. And I tell them all, I said, you are all important. Uh, And that's the way that we motivate our staff is to work together and say is that we pull together a staff that is not a design and production department, we pull together a staff because that's the way our universities are training people these days is that you are a team and, and we bring together a team of professionals that fits the project that we're working on. So if there's a residential project out there that has a little bit of office in it, and a little bit of retail in it, the residential practice group will lead that particular project. And because it's predominantly residential, but we will have experts from the retail environment practice group and the office practice group come on and influence it mm-hmm. and because, because we know the fundamental rules to follow that, that make good functional retail. And we yep. know the fundamental rules that make good functional office as well. And yep. that way, these teams can work together in order to perfect the designs that we're working on. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's our hiring idea from that perspective. And, you know, I think sometimes it takes a person coming out of school several years to discover and maybe even accept what their core talent really is and where they are best served in a architectural firm. And for some, it may even be disappointing. But once they find their role and they and they get into their mode, then they can perfect the other things and they become what I call T-shaped people, is that you have this core fundamental a uh, talent that you bring—that's God-given—and you really do. You really do excel at that, and you really find out that you really—that's—that's that's where you bring your net worth to a firm. But then, as you practice, you learn to broaden areas, and you become a stronger person, and you become a bridge between those aspects of of creating great design. And and we find that that's that's very important. In those environments, there's a, a book. I forget the author's name, but he came. He was the founder of IDEO many years ago, and he wrote the ten principles of the ten principles that influence design. And, and it was kind of one of these personality tests from a design perspective that help makers uh, really discover
0: who they are as a designer. Well, that's a very str- strong explanation, David, of your of your hiring practices. I appreciate that. If you uh, I'm going to ask one final question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway or on a place that millions of people could see, what would it say, David? Never give up.
1: Keep on swinging. One thing I haven't talked about. I did touch on it when we said design was hard through all of the circumstances of life, and we're involved in one right now. It's easy to it's it's easy to give up, and 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 I think architecture. While probably not the most entrepreneurial profession in the world. It is fairly entrepreneurial. It is risk-taking. It takes a long time to perfect. You know, you can be in the practice for, you know, up to five to ten years uh, in many cases before you might say, Oh, I've got a project of my own, especially in a, in a in a medium to large firm. We're big, but we're we're one of the smaller, bigger firms. We, you know, only have about 350 people total in our in our firm. Uh, and we're we're small as as you compare to the Genslers and the HOKs of the world. But it is a profession that is that is prodding in nature, and, and, and it you, you go to school and you learn the fundamentals of design, and you deal with that. But then, but you have no idea what it takes to put together a building when you graduate. It is one of those experiential kinds of professions where it's easy to lose heart, and uh, it's easy in some cases to go somewhere else where you might make more money, but you're not practicing architecture anymore. So I think really, if my, it was true to me, and, and I had the attitude, especially during that first recession where I was one of two people in this, in this Washington DC office it was very lonely, is that never give up, just don't give up,
0: keep swinging. Well, David, on that note, thank you very much. Appreciate your time and your candor and wide-ranging discussion that we had today and i really appreciate that thank you i appreciate your
1: i appreciate your invitation i respect you for your uh, history in the real estate business because i've seen you and observed you for a long time and along with the colleagues that you've interviewed they inspire me i I caught myself (laughs) um crying several times (laughs) like I'm about to do now because it is an incredible rewarding career because of the influence that you can have on culture and I appreciate that I can count myself or you count me as a part of one of the the Icons.
0: You are an icon legacy in the
1: real estate market of Washington. You are an icon,
0: David. Thanks I appreciate it. Thank you.